I think sometimes people might think who who maybe aren't super immersed in like, you know, eco-critical themes and eco-art and and they might think, oh, like maybe art can be a way to portray facts or figures or, you know, to show, you know, a specific issue in a new way, like to, you know, to translate some sort of scientific information into a visual form to convey info to an audience, which I think that's really helpful. You know, a lot of people learn things different ways. Some people like to read things. Some people like to look at things. So obviously, like as a way to convey information to the public or, you know, to show, I don't know, to try to convey some sort of ecological disaster to people by talking about, you know, a, a certain species Um, numbers dropping or something like that to have like a graph or a visual can be really helpful. But I think that art can move beyond that as well and really sort of almost lead the way in sort of imagining what the future might look like, a future that is better for not just human beings, but for plants, for animals. Welcome to Insights of an Echo Artist. My name is Joanna Larkin. I'm an eco artist and arts writer. In every episode, I bring worldwide artists that embody the fight to create a more sustainable world. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we continue our conversation with Katrin Gripkov, a visual artist based in Western Ireland. If you have missed the previous conversation or part one of the conversation with Catherine, her work reflects a deep concern for ecology and the environment, and she explores new ways of thinking about our relationship with nature. In the second part of the interview, we'll delve into Catherine's creational practice, her insights on ecology or ecological approaches to art making, and how she sees art as a tool for change in our rapidly changing world. Join us as we learn about Catherine's creative process, her research and the advice she has for aspiring artists who want to make a positive impact on our planet. So going back to that idea of sustainability that you mentioned at the beginning. So what is sustainability for you? You said that it changed a bit over the years or maybe the course of your PhD. So can you talk about a bit what is sustainability for you? Yeah, so sustainability is like, I think, and, and I know some artists who get like really hot and bothered when you use that term. Um, like someone I, I talked to recently was like, sustainable is not what we should be pursuing. You know, if you someone asked you what your relationship was like with your friend and you said sustainable, that wouldn't sound very good. And I, and I totally get that. I think that there's other words that you could use instead, but when I was first starting out with this project, I was looking at, um, it was a bit different. And then I pivoted to what I'm doing now, but I was looking at like consumerism and sustainability as sort of a buzzword with like companies, um, you know, companies that might be using it to like, greenwash their product yeah as in like pretend their product is like totally great for the environment while they're also trying to sell you things and make you buy more and consume more so i was just sort of looking at it in that respect and then wondering like what would it be like to be a sustainable artist is that a good thing is that a bad thing should i be looking for something more than sustainability and i think I, I don't know, 
exactly the right answer, but for me, like sustainability isn't necessarily a bad thing. It could mean, I think why, why people frown about it is because it does have that sort of bad reputation yeah. as something that's been co-opted by companies to sell you things. But besides that, to me, it could mean like a thing to pursue where, especially thinking about a relationship with an agricultural product or agricultural space, like a garden, growing materials for a practice to have this sort of like sustaining while also like sustaining in a good way relationship yeah. between the growing plants and, you know, using them to make artwork. So yeah. to kind of have a bit of a balance between what's growing, what I'm harvesting and, and thinking less of like a linear system of, you know, waste and extraction and more of like a circular process. Yeah. But I've also come to believe that like sustainability or even this idea of like a perfectly circular system of growing and, and then making things from what you grow is sort of impossible. And so it's not something that is ever really achievable. It's more something that you pursue. But again, I don't want to like use sustainability too much because it does have such a bad reputation yeah. and it is, you know, such bad connotations. But I think it was an important step in my sort of development as an artist recently and sort of tackling that word and, you know, trying to define it for myself and then move beyond it. Um, so I think like my supervisor, Eileen, would say like, we don't want sustainable relations. We want like flourishing, thriving relations. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with that. Like, and that's why I think with my garden, like even, even the small garden that I've created is not just for me, like it's, it's overgrown, it's wild. It is habitat for, you know, insects and animals and things like that. So um, and I, if anyone who sees it will be like, whoa, that's like definitely thriving because it's just like all over the place. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like a super manicured space, but it's, it's a bit wild. So yeah, it's a, it's a tough word to tackle. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's important that you build on this partnership and this connection between the humans and nature and all its ecosystems rather than thinking, oh no, I have to have a sustainable practice. Yeah, it's, it's moving beyond sustainability to yeah. a practice that, well, so I'll, I'll back up a little bit. One, one thing that really inspired my PhD, and maybe not is, maybe isn't super obvious, but, you know, I think a lot of people reading texts about climate change and about ecological crises and whatnot can feel a lot of despair. And especially as an artist, you know, you might look around your studio and realize you've been using, you know, maybe plastic paints and things like that, yeah. or just sort of, you might spend some time like feeling a bit guilty or something like that, which I never, I'm not the type of person to like guilt trip any artist. I think, you know, there's a lot of layers to what people can yeah. use, whether yeah, it's, you know, what's available, what they can afford, you know, things like that. But one thing that was really inspiring for me was um, there's this artist based in Canada, Oliver Kellhammer, who's one of my favorite artists. <laughs> and um, I'm a bit nerdy about his work. And he did a project, it was like, what was it called? Um, Bridging the Gap or something like that, where he, and he talks about this a bit, like sort of tr treading the line between ecologist and artist and using art to create like ecological spaces. So he basically mm -hmm. like took over this um, abandoned like hillside under, under an overpass, um, a highway overpass, um, which was just sort of, 
looked rocky and muddy and was like at risk of sort of falling down onto the road and um, was really unsightly. And just with some simple acts of sticking willow branches into the ground and building bird boxes, he was able to, because the birds, you know, will bring seeds to the area and drop them. He was able to, you know, 10 years later, it's like this lush green space. And that was sort of like a eye-opening, like, oh my gosh, art can be not just a painting or a drawing or a sculpture, but can also be like a real world project and it can still be art and it can really, really change an ecosystem and make a difference. Um, so I think, yeah, that works like that are really inspiring to me and um, sort of propelled me to then create my own garden and to feel a bit more like I could do more, you know, like I had more power to really um, transform, you know, the garden, which when I got it was like a little tract of land with nothing growing on it, really. It was sort of abandoned and um, I was able to bring it into being this like wild space that also happened to provide dye plants and things like that for my practice. Yeah. So this small patch of land, this uh, garden, So when you finish your PhD, are you going to stay connected with the college and maybe this garden, going to pass it down to someone? Um, I think maybe a little bit of both. Like I, I'm definitely going to stay around. Of course, you know, things depend a bit on, you know, immigration and whatnot, but my husband and I really want to stay in Ireland. We are living in Kinvara right now. We love it. It's about 20 minutes from the college. And I mean, I've had brief chats with people who's at the college who are fine to have me, you know, sticking around. And um, I've already <laughs> integrated it a little bit into some of the classes. And I teach some dying workshops with some of the students and things like that. So I think they would be happy to have me stick around and take care of it. But I also hope to maybe pass on a little bit more of like the knowledge of how to care for it and have some of the other students involved. But yeah, like I, part of the one thing you learn in permaculture is to be very open with your information and to share, because if, you know, bottom line, if you want the world to be a better place, then, you know, holding information tightly to your chest or um, techniques or whatever is not going to really help the world yeah. be better. So, um, yeah, I would love to sort of pass on the knowledge of growing these plants in the garden and get others involved and not just have it be my own. Although I yeah. am a bit protective of it. Like I, cause you know, it's a college. We have visiting students from abroad who, you know, are only there for a short time and might not know that like they shouldn't be walking all over the space or, yeah. you know, so I am a little bit protective in that way, just to make sure that nothing happens to it. But if anyone that, Like I've had lots of people come in and out to help me with things and I'm very open to people, you know, working with the plants and using them as well. Yeah, that's good to, to keep that small patch of land alive because I remember that small mm. patch of land. <laughs> it was a bit abandoned. So I'm really happy that someone did something with it and I hope it continues that your work not only helps you understand be better your connection with nature, but also the students that pass down uh, at the college. Definitely. And also like be a material source for other students. So, yep. you know, if that would help them to get off of, you know, importing dyes from other places and picking their own outside, then that would be great. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's the, the college is a lot connected with art and ecology. So <laughs> hope that, uh, that yeah, continues. That's a good fit. <laughs> yeah. 
So last time we spoke, you were at an art and ecology residency in Spain. Can you tell us a bit about the experience and what art artwork did you develop uh, during your stay? Yeah, so um, I went to Hoya, which I think is a pretty um, well-known residency in the art and ecology sort of um, sphere. Although I think also, I don't think um, it's necessarily limited to art like ecological artists, but artists who are then going to go and like use the landscape to influence their practices. But it was really fun to go partially because the um, Simon who runs the residency is really into permaculture. So we got to chat a little bit about that. Um, and they're doing a lot of really great work to revitalize the desert landscape around the residency and um, things like that. But I find residencies, you know, to be very um, helpful for me to kind of take a break from my daily life and just sort of have this hyper focused um, time spent, you know, making. And I did a lot of writing as well while I was there. Um, and what was really nice was they cooked food for you. So I didn't even have to cook, <laughs> which I really like because um, I, I do love to cook, but it was nice to have someone else do it for me. But it was like I went with the idea to sort of test out some of what I've been doing in Ireland in a new place in a completely different environment. So, you know, southern Spain is very different from Ireland. It's more desert-like landscape, much drier. Even though I went in November, it still really wasn't raining yet. Um, so the plants that grow there are very different than what grow here. Yeah. And I was able to sort of connect to the plants there through, um, I ended up doing a series of like ephemeral works in nature, um, just sort of playing with you know different plants that i would find on walks and building little sculptures um you know using sometimes like for example with flowers you know you might think oh it's like a bright purple flower maybe it'll make a bright purple dye um but actually usually it doesn't work like that at all um but if i could make like a you know a little drawing in the ground with with the petals and then take a picture of it you know that that's a way to use the color without, um, you know, extracting dyes or yeah. whatever. And so I ended up creating a bunch of little ephemeral works and photographing them. And then about halfway through the, um, through the residency, I um, started hanging up plants in my studio to take home with me to Ireland. And um, that's just sort of how you would dry them out. Um, so I would, I closed all the windows and I hung them up and I turned on the lights in the studio and, and they were track lights and, um, they started casting like these different shadows on the plants. Um, so each plant had like four different shadows on the wall and they would kind of overlap and make even darker shadows. And, and then I had some inks with me that I had made as well as some watercolors and charcoal. And I just started tracing the shadows. And um, I ended up adding more and more plants. And as the plants dried, sometimes the shadows changed. So then I would retrace them. And then I ended up with this sort of like wall covered in plants. And it was something I'd never done before. It was very unexpected, which I think was good for me because when I go on a residency, I don't like to sort of force myself to do something. I kind of like to wait and see what happens. And, um, and that happened. And it was really lovely to be able to, again, like sort of give over a bit of the art making agency to the plants to really just be tracing their shapes on the wall. And it was 
simple, um, accessible for other people. You know, if I were to do it again somewhere else and have others participate, it's, it's a really easy thing to do. You don't really have to be a fantastic drawer to just sort of trace, you know, shapes onto um, the wall. And at the same time, like there were times when my hand would block the light and therefore the shadow would disappear. And then, you know, I'm kind of using my mind to fill in the gaps. So it was a bit of a collaboration with the plants and myself. And it was really fun. <laughs> yeah, I imagine because going to a residency is always good to stand still and let things happen for you because that's the that's the good thing about going to a residency you are in a different place not most of the times with different people and it's always good to let your creativity just spark a bit not being completely yeah. on on a box creating things that you always been been creating mm -hmm. absolutely i would recommend that to anyone going on residency even if you're going for a specific project like often you'll find yourself collecting things to bring home, you know, from, from the environment or something like that, but just to really be open to letting a new place kind of influence you. Yep. It's really fun. Also, if you are an artist and want to be featured on the magazine, go to the page, submit your work on our website and see the required steps. We hope to see your work. Recently, or right now, I believe, you are curating a show at Laneway Gallery in Cork, so Meant to Fade. What can you tell us about mm. this show? Yeah, so um, curating is another thing I've always wanted to try out. And I think it's a really great way to connect with other artists and to bring artists that you might already love um, together and to do a show with them. Um, So I applied to an open call at this gallery and with this idea of a show um, and I, I'm co-curating. So I'm working with um, my friend Phoebe Toll, who's also at the college. She's a master's student. And so we kind of came up with this idea for this show called Meant to Fade. And um, it kind of comes from like, you know, when I was in art school in New York and, you know, you're, you're told to always use archival materials, permanent materials. And I think as eco artists, you or anyone studying like eco theory, you kind of learn that again, it goes back to time a bit, like the idea of something outliving its creator is a bit creepy in a way. Like it's not <laughs> a good thing if your work is like on the planet for forever and it won't break down and, you know, it's not, it's not going to be good for the environment. And so there's a lot of artists out there who are embracing materials that, you know, might break down quickly or, or using more ephemeral processes and really thinking about the sort of the timeline of the art object from when it's created, how the materials are sourced to like how it breaks down after it's displayed. So that was the idea for the show to sort of embrace ephemerality, embrace materials that fade or crumble or change over the course of the show, um, or to really sort of highlight artists who are using careful practices and um, processes that are not, you know, extractive, exploitative, or, um, you know, damaging to the environment and uh, really sort of thinking through the, the beginning to end of their 
their art making, which includes like, you know, the processes of making it as well as the materials that are used. Mm. Yeah. So we have a show it's going up in on June 1st in Cork. And um, we even have like an opening event with performance artists who are um, by their very natural nature, that work is ephemeral (laughs) Um, because it doesn't last. um, And it can be also difficult to, you know, profit from or get a place to show that. So we have a few performance artists at the beginning, and then we have a bunch of different works. Um, We have works by Marianne McClayman. She's doing, she has a quilt made out of lint and as well as some drawings made with grass pulp, which is really, it's really beautiful. We have some alternative um, f- photographic processes, um, which um, Christine Mackey and Aster David are using. I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, we have a lot. I'm going to be doing a textile piece as well. We have a, a, a woman from England who's coming over for the show, and she does you know sculptures that are going to be sprouting mushrooms. Kate Shorey is her name. Um, so hopefully some of the works will actually be changing over the course of the month-long mm-hmm. exhibit which will be, I think, interesting for people to experience when they come in and see the show. Yeah. So what were some of the challenges you had curating the show? Um, Well, one of the big ones was funding because this is a brand new gallery and we're very, very grateful that they've given us, you know, the space to put on the show, especially such a unique type of show. Uh, But because it's brand new, it doesn't really have a lot of money yet. And so... Um, we've been, we have to be pretty creative with how we're putting things together and it's been hard on us as artists to not be able to offer payment for participation, which like I'm from, you know, the U S and living in Brooklyn, like you don't get paid to do anything. (laughs) You do everything for free (laughs) until you get like gallery representation or whatever. But in Ireland, there's usually like a fee to participate. So Um, just sort of navigating that. And luckily, I think a lot of the artists responded really well to the theme of the show and to the ideas behind it. And so we're willing to participate. And also we're trying our best to make sure that there's at least no cost to the artist to be part of it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're picking up all the work ourselves and installing it. There's no, there was no fee to apply to the show, things like that. And a lot, most of the work was already made. So you know, that it was, it was already, you know, in their studios. So I don't think it's too hard for them to then loan it out for a month for the show and they can sell it as well at the gallery. So, um, but it was, it was a bit tricky to just sort of get over that as artists ourselves. Um, and then, yeah, moving forward, like there's some things that'll be interesting to deal with, like trying to get press coverage of the show, which I've never done before really. Um, I'm also, we're working on like a publication to come out, um, not a catalog, but it's more of a publication with a few different essays and poems and, um, some images and things like that to come out alongside the show. So just working with printers and trying to get everything together for that. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be more challenges along the way. Like, you know, when you get to the space and things go wrong, which they inevitably will, so just um, being prepared for that, being prepared to be flexible and to improvise and making sure I, it's also the, the gallery is about three hours away from where I live. So, you know, making sure that I have everything that I could possibly need um, if anything goes wrong. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, sound, it sounds really interesting, the team that you put together and the artists, you're describing the artworks. So I'm sure that everything is going to be, be great. And I totally understand that all the funding aspects, it's always something that we have to expect, but it's always something that we do not like to deal with because, well, it's it's important to help the artists the best we can, as curators especially, but there is so much we can do. So I totally understand that. Yeah. And I think like as, as you know, ecological artists who are using alternative um different sort of materials it can be really hard to profit off of that kind of work i think things are getting better i think more and more collectors or people buying art are okay with things fading with things changing but it's there's still a lot of you know work to be done with that so again we're just trying to you know sort of put ourselves in their shoes and think like okay what would what would we want if we were going to be part of this show and not get you know, payment just for participating. Well, we would want the curators to be super friendly and helpful. We would want them to maybe offer something to us like, you know, nice photographs of the work in the gallery space and um, beautiful um, promotional materials and things like that. So we're trying our best to be generous with our time and to give advice and to just be pleasant to work with because that's the last thing you want is to be dealing with the nightmare of a curator for a show. So going back to your practice again, what is the thing you always turn to when you feel overwhelmed or when the work is not going as expected? Um, I was looking at that question, trying to come up with something because I feel I think there's a lot of different things that I do. Basically, I need to sort of give myself space um, from a work if things are not going as expected. But in general, I try to and this is something I've been writing about a bit in my dissertation, try to sort of approach any, you know, art making situation with this sort of, this sort of idea to that, that things won't go that well, that it's going to be an improvisation almost that it's, I'm going to need to be flexible, especially working with the non-human, the plants, you know, like there are things that I can't always control with them. Like sometimes I expect a certain color to come when I'm dying and it doesn't happen and I have to be okay with that. So I think to begin with just sort of not expecting everything to go perfectly when I make a work to be a bit more fluid in my movements in the studio is really helpful to sort of avoid finding yourself in a situation where you're really frustrated. But at the same time, I can, I definitely do need like, you know, things that sort of take me out of the studio for a little bit, um, to sort of take a step back often. And, um, part of that is just sort of mixing up like working and writing. And also like I do things like I go on a lot of walks in nature with my dog. Um, and I listen to music, you know, and I also really like to, cause I read a lot of theory and a lot of nonfiction texts. I really like to read novels. So (laughs) I don't know if that's the right thing for this question, but I think, yeah, like reading fiction at night and I often, it's funny because I'll, I'll pick up books that actually often have like ecological themes or, um, I was just reading flights by Olga Tukurjic and I think that's how you say her name. And I just kept coming up, like there were quotes in the book that were so relevant to like what I'm reading in, you know, 
my theory books yeah. and things like that. So I do think part of me like gravitates towards those kinds of books anyways. But yeah, I think it's important to have some sort of hobby outside of, you know, a practice if your practice yeah. is very serious and focused to sort of bring yourself away and then you can step back into it a bit more refreshed. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I'm also a person who reads a lot and a lot of technical books. Mm -hmm. I started doing that more and more when I was at the Burren. And actually, I came back to nonfiction books like a, a month ago just to mm -hmm. just to relax a bit and be able to to immerse myself in in a world that wasn't created by me because the book wasn't created by me and to relax a bit and it, it always helps and actually boosts my creativity in a way that I was wasn't even expecting I was doing it for to to relax a bit and step away from my own world and my own work and it really helps yeah definitely also we had the amazing opportunity to partner with sound artist Annabelle Galea who created the sounds that you hear during the conversation. You're gonna hear and listen to her work during this season, so go give her your love and support. I will leave the link in the description so you can find her. Now for the closer questions, or the last three questions I have for you. So what are your insights into the importance of art as a tool to raise awareness of social or ecological problems? Um, so I think sometimes people might think who who maybe aren't super immersed in like, you know, eco-critical themes and eco-art and and they might think, oh, like maybe art can be a way to portray facts or figures or, you know, to show, you know, a specific issue in a new way, like to, you know, to translate some sort of scientific information into a visual form to convey info to an audience, which I think that's really helpful. You know, a lot of people learn things different ways. Some people like to read things. Some people like to look at things. So yeah. obviously, like as a way to convey information to the public or, you know, to show, I don't know, to try to convey some sort of ecological disaster to people by talking about, you know, a, a certain species um, numbers dropping or something like that to have like a graph or a visual can be really helpful. But I think that art can move beyond that as well and really sort of almost lead the way in sort of imagining what the future might look like, a future that is better for not just human beings, but for plants, for animals. You know, I read a lot of um, Donna Haraway, which I'm sure you read at college, and um, she talks a lot about this idea of um, SF, speculative fiction, but also can mean science fiction. And um, I think a lot of, or there's a certain group of, of eco-critical writers that reference science fiction a lot because that was a way that um, artists, writers, or um, illustrators, or whoever, were kind of using art to sort of imagine new futures. And it is sort of amazing how some things have come out of science fiction and are, are real today, you know? Um, and I'm not a huge sci-fi fan myself, but I do think it's like an example of how art can sort of lead the way in sort of speculating on like livable futures that are not just for humans, but for, for more than humans. And, and then in general, just art as a way to, I think this 
is a bit of a paraphrasing from Paul Clay, um, but the the idea that art is a way to make visible the invisible. And um, when you are dealing with something like climate change, like climate change is a huge problem, but it's not easy to see, um, especially as like a human being. It's not easily felt as well. It's so gradual. And so I think art can then help us see things that we might not be able to see or yeah, I think those are the main two things, like sort of making visible what might not be visible to the naked eye. And that can be interpreted in many ways. And also like as a way to sort of imagine future ways of existing. And in my case, that would be future ways of, you know, working with material and plants as collaborators. Yeah. What is the most important lesson you have learned over your career? I read a book a couple years ago. Um, called Against Purity, Living Ethically in Compromised Times by Dr. Alexis Shotwell. That book was hugely influential on my practice. Again, like a few years ago, I was a bit, you know, paralyzed with like, how do I make work as an artist when being an artist can be so damaging for the environment? Or how can I even be a human being, you know, when human beings are so damaging to the environment, everything we do um, in a way is um, troublesome or, or, you know, can be looked at closer. And um, this book really helped me to understand that, you know, trying to pursue purity, whether it's like the your material selections or, you know, your daily living is kind of impossible um, because the world is really complex. It's nuanced, you know, even if you're trying to, you know, turn a, a piece of land into like a pure, pristine wilderness, you know, there's microplastics embedded in the soil. There's things going on that aren't perfect, you know, in, in getting rid of a weed, you might be getting rid of like a habitat for a specific animal. So things are really complex and layered. And I've come to see purity as a sort of a non-helpful way of moving and thinking as, as it kind of, I mean, obviously it relates to other things like um, gender issues and, and racial issues and things like that. But in terms of ecology, like this idea of like pristine nature as something that we can like go back to by, you know, changing, you know, a specific ecology or something like that. I think it's like a false promise and it, it wastes a lot of energy and, um, more specifically, more specifically, like with my gardening practice, I used to be nervous that like, I would mess up something that I would kill a plant, you know, that I would make the wrong move as someone who's not that experienced with gardening. And then when I kind of read this book, it allowed me to, and, and thought through some of these ideas of purity and avoiding it. It allowed me to actually just act and yeah. be more productive and not be sort of paralyzed by fear of like not being pure in my actions, you know, not being absolutely perfect when I'm working with plants and, um, you know, working with plants, you don't speak the same language. It's hard to know if everything you're doing is perfect or what's right, but it's, it's better to do something than nothing. So yeah. As long as you're working towards betterment, whatever that may look like. Yeah, I think that's better than than standing still for fear of making the wrong move or, or being impure. Yeah. So what are three things you'd recommend an artist to do for themselves and their careers and why? Yeah, so the first thing I think I touched on this earlier is um, to 
constantly sort of be reflecting on what you're doing and to be sort of recording what you're doing. So a really simple way to do that is to just like photograph everything because you never know when you're going to need it again to like refer to something or think about something else you did. So like if you're a natural dyer, you might want to start keeping a dye journal, um, you know, recording recipes and samples and taking photographs of your processes and things like that. If you're a gardener, you might want to photograph the different stages of your plants and then, you know, reflect back on these things. If you have a problem, you know, you can kind of work backwards and see what might have caused that problem. So like recording and photographing things would be my first one. Um, my second would be just to like allow time to play, whether that's with, you know, new materials or processes um, to really just like let loose and have fun because often that's where like brilliant things come yeah. from is just sort of like the unexpected playfulness in the studio. And then my third would be to like, you know, if you're thinking about becoming a more, you know, ecologically minded artist and you don't know where to begin, I'd say like, think about self-sufficiency and how you can influence your own specific situation. So you don't have to change the world in one day, but you can like, you know, look at your own situation and think about what you can do to be more self-sufficient, less reliant on, you know, companies, on shipping materials, on getting things from other places. I mean, we all know what happened like during the pandemic when some of yeah. the like supply lines were sort of shut down and all of a sudden you might not have been able to get something that you were used to getting. So like not being beholden to other systems or entities and really sort of taking charge of your own situation. It's it's both like really empowering and often better for the environment. Um, you know, you could start a garden and start growing your own materials or something like that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's all the questions I have for you today. So I really appreciate you being here and talking about your work and your practice and the other things that you do alongside your practice. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Joanna. It was really fun and I hope someone gets something out of it by listening to me ramble on. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from the expiring Katrin Gripkov and learning about her innovative approaches to ecology and art. Let's continue to work towards a more thriving and connected world. And who knows, maybe one day we'll have our own dye and pigment gardens. Stay tuned for more thought-provoking interviews and discussions on our podcasts. And until next time, keep creating and making a positive impact on the world. If you enjoyed our show, don't forget to rate us and follow us on Instagram. <laughs>